My name is J uh, Dr. James Brooks, and I have the privilege of serving as the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this noontime lecture that we have here today. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. I just want to run through a couple of upcoming events, um, the first and foremost of which is on Saturday, March 18th, this Saturday, the VMHC will open its next major exhibition, Apollo, When We Went to the Moon. Through the objects and artifacts of exploration and technology, this exhibition takes attendees back to the heights of Cold War rivalry between the United States and the USSR, USSR and all the way to the collaborative culture of the International Space Station program. And while the Houston Space Center in Texas and the spaceports of Florida figure prominently in our shared memory of the Apollo missions, this exhibition recognizes Virginia's role in the space race by examining NASA Langley's role in propelling the United States from having the smallest aeronautics program in the Western world to becoming the first nation to land on the moon. On Tuesday, April 6th, please join us for our next in-person lecture when David O. Stewart will speak about the burning land. When the family goes to war, the war comes home. A recent book that is published based on his ancestors' service in the 20th Maine Infantry in the American Civil War. Finally, on April 11th, please join us here at the VMHC for historian Bert Dunkley's talk on the worst home front disaster in the Confederacy, the Browns Island explosion of 1863. Bert will discuss the explosion itself, as well as the ongoing search to find the victim's burial sites. And this program will allow attendees to actually see items from our collection that relate to this disaster. And just one final note, following today's lecture, Richmond's own truckle cheesemongers will be in the museum cafe as part of our ongoing cafe series featuring producers from around the Commonwealth. So they'll be offering cheese uh, pairing suggestions and samples. So we hope you'll get to stop in after the lecture today. So now to today's program. Though the Civil War's battles were settled more than a century and a half ago, our collective memories continue to be rife with conflict. This has especially proved the case over the last several years, as some Civil War monuments come down and other interpretations emerge, important questions must be asked by the public and by historians as well. What stories should be commemorated? What features of history should be highlighted? And what role should the Confederacy play in the history of the United States? Connor Williams is here today to discuss how US society arrived at these questions and where we might go from here, and especially through the stories of the three Virginia forts for which the commission recommended new names. Before serving as the lead historian of the Naming Commission, Connor pursued his doctorate in history and African-American studies at Yale University, where he was a mentee of the distinguished historian David Blight. He is currently completing A Race on the Frontier, African-American Lives, Labors, and Communities in Northern California, 1850 to 1915, a book project that examines the political struggles, economic opportunities, labor strategies, and networks of organization and support that Black Americans forged throughout the Golden State between the Gold Rush and, and the Great War. Please join me today in giving a very warm welcome to Connor Williams. Thank you very much, James, for the introduction, and thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, just a quick plug, I'm from Vermont, a large part of my life, and good history matters, but good cheese matters also. So I um, hope you'll go to the, the, the exhibit uh, or the, the tasting. Uh, I also just want to, it's so wonderful to be here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Thank you all for taking time of your day to come and hear these thoughts. 
my first meeting after the naming commission wrapped uh, was actually with a historian right across the hall in the cafe here. So it's wonderful to be back about six months later talking about this. I'm gonna do a few things today as James outlined. I'm gonna try to talk a little about uh, Civil War history, Civil War memory, and Civil War commemoration, which as you'll hear, I think are often kind of conflated, but they're really three different things that we should keep separate in our memories. I'm gonna talk about the Naming Commission itself, what it did tell our story about how we were organized and, and what we actually did. And then I'm gonna finish by discussing the, the new namesakes that were recommended by the commission and since approved by Congress and the Secretary of Defense to become the new namesakes for what will soon be formally Fort Pickett, Fort Lee, Fort AP Hill. And I'll finish with that. I do wanna say that uh, I work for the Naming Commission. I thoroughly endorse our opinions, but I really welcome any feedback and any thoughts. And we should have good conversations with different viewpoints if, if that's the case. To that end, I was well, my, my title here, Making Trees and Odious Again, is meant to be eye-catching, but it actually comes from a quote that was said in 1865 uh, by an American, which was that at the end of the war, treason must be made odious once more. And does anybody know who said that? This audience might know right away, but oftentimes it kind of stumps folks. Any guesses who said that? John yeah. Wilson. John Will. <laughs> Charles Sumner would be a good guess. Yeah, that is another good guess. Radical Republicans. Sorry? <laughs> Andrew Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson is the person who said that. The senator from Tennessee, vice president, about to become president. And that actually really matters. Andrew Johnson is not a, uh, a liberal Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens type. He He's probably our most white supremacist president uh, in our history. And he fought reconstruction tooth and nail in most of its ways and then vetoed every reconstruction act. But even Andrew Johnson thought that what was happening in the civil war was treason and that we owed it in our memories to, to make it odious, to, to not remember this with too much approval. Now, anytime you talk about Uh, these questions, questions come up in our minds. We're almost kind of primed for them, and they're good questions. And this, you could start anywhere on this little chart I've made. You know, you, you might say, well, you're changing uh, monuments. Weren't all Americans racist? Didn't Abraham Lincoln say all kinds of things about African Americans that are repugnant to our morals today? The answer is absolutely. And how can you judge somebody for the culture that they grew up in? I have young children. I'm gonna to have to answer one day to them about all the things my generation did not do to avert climate change. And some of that is righteous, but some of that, I had no clue when I was you know, taking an airplane flight in 1994, what the jet fuel was doing and I, I still fly. So how, how will we judge, you know, how do we wanna be judged in the future? Isn't this erasing history? I don't like the Confederates, I don't approve of them, but it happened. And you can't scrub our history clean. That's what's done in other countries. And then lastly, what about all the good things they did? Didn't Robert E. Lee, through his complete surrender at Appomattox, through his desire to not engage in guerrilla warfare, through his silence after the Civil War to not inflame passions, wasn't he a great military tactician, if nothing else? And what happens often in our memory is these questions happen, they kind of churn around and around in the, the warm water of our memories, kind of like a hurricane, which is why I have that, that image up there, until they become a, a full storm of anger. And I will say that I, and I dare say virtually every Civil War historian I know, if there is ever a, a movement to take books out of libraries or take Civil War exhibits out of museums, we will be on the front lines to fight that. But memory, history, and commemoration remain very different things. It's also a very old, old issue. Uh, it goes back to Cicero and, and far before that and other traditions and other cultures. But Cicero, uh, the year before he himself was killed in a civil war, uh, wrote that for the life of the dead consists in the memory cherished of them by the living. 
that when people are gone, as long as they are remembered, and hopefully especially as long as they are cherished, they're not truly gone. That's a, a non-religious sense of how people can have life after death. It's also the main conceit in the Disney movie Coco. So the point of that, though, is that anytime you have Marcus Tilius Cicero and Walter Disney on the same page, you're talking about a real human phenomenon. And that, that's very true. Memory is probably the single most important evolutionary thing that makes us as a species important. Opposable thumbs are great, but if you've ever seen a squirrel climb a tree or a bird fly through the air, many creatures do far more impressive things without opposable thumbs. Uh, but memory, the ability to learn things, to pass it on to our subsequent generations, is what has contributed to knowledge over the years. Yeah, there are some birds that can fly from the same island in Newfoundland to the same tree in Patagonia and back again every year, and that's an incredible kind of memory, salmon coming upstream. But really, at the end of the day, it's our ability to know things, to know we know them, and pass them along that matters. And that's crucial. If I ever have to have an operation, I want the surgeon to have a very good memory. I don't want him forgetting things halfway through and checking a textbook. Um, so, so memory is really a, a key part of what makes us human. But we can have too much memory sometimes. This has also been written about, uh, you know, probably one of the greatest sonnets ever written is by Percy Bysshe Shelley called Ozymandias. It's written in 1817 after the Napoleonic Wars. To quote a few lines from it, it's a story he tells. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read. And he continues, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. One of the most poetic warnings we have of what happens with time. This statue was made to convince everybody around them to look on it, that it was mighty, you'll never be as great as I am, but now it's a wreck, it's forgotten. Very unsettling feeling. And it's actually, they literally just found a, a wreck of an Ozymandias statue uh, in Cairo. They're digging a, a drainage ditch and they found this, this statue. So this literally happened still. There's one key thing. Ozymandias is not forgotten. Ozymandias is the Greek name of Ramses II, who's the, probably the single greatest pharaoh we know about. So he, he does remain in our histories. My colleagues in ancient studies can tell me about him. But the statues have changed. It's a fitting poem, of course, because we're at a time where monuments are changing throughout the nation. I use this slide a lot throughout speaking engagements, but uh, obviously right next door, the UDC headquarters uh, was the, the site of protest, of violence, firebombing. People point out that Stonewall Jackson on Monument Avenue, without the statue there, it looks kind of like a mausoleum, like a tombstone. The Lee Memorial, Lee Monument, excuse me, and the, the New Orleans Lee also coming down. And this is the, the period in which naming commission was actually created. So in the summer of 2020, things that had been going on in our society really since 1865, but at least since 2015, uh, came to a head with the death of George Floyd at the custody of and now convicted murder of Minneapolis policemen. An interesting thing happened, this happens a lot in American history, when something happens and people find a symbol representative of it. And I hear a lot that Confederates had nothing to do with George Floyd's death, and I'm not a modern historian, so I'm not trying to get into that discussion. Uh, however, it became pretty clear, people said, why do we still have monuments up 
to men who fought in a movement to dissolve the United States, to enslave their fellow man, and who, and this is the thing, whatever you think about states' rights or uh, secession, you can't really get around this fact, who fought and killed United States Army soldiers. If you fought for what we too often call the blue or the unions or the Yanks or the Federals, you fought for the United States Army, the army that was started by George Washington and that Colin Powell also served in, that men and women at Fort Lee still serve in. If you fought in the Confederate Army, your, your army has no antecedent. And if you look at the documents, it's USA versus CSA. They didn't take the two chairs out of the Senate from Mississippi when they seceded. And so it was in the Senate that a bill was born to uh, change Confederate moralization of the Department of Defense. People said it will take a very long time to address the issues of police policing policy. It'll take a very long time to address housing inequity. It'll take a very long time to address these things. But one thing we can do very quickly is decide what our defense assets commemorate. And this bill had broad bipartisan support. What they did is they put this into the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. And this is far and away the single largest thing our government does on an annual basis in terms of money. Uh, the most recent one was $840 billion. It was somewhat notable. You may have read about it because the military asked for $800 billion. And Congress said, you know what? Ukraine, Russia, China, there's a lot out there. Here's $40 billion extra please be extra prepared. It's also important to note, this was section 370 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which means there were 369 sections before it. It addressed things like better parental leave for soldiers, uh, letting soldiers have their leave carry over from year to year, uh, having DOD civilians in combat zones get paid more, having anti-discrimination. These were lots of things that were in the same bill. There's no line in veto, so President Trump vetoed it, and his, some of his tweets are up there. But what really strikes me is at the end when he says, our history as the greatest nation in the world will not be tampered with. Respect our military. And history, uh, the history of the greatest nation in the world, I, Ming China, the Roman Empire, about 180 AD, they were pretty great. And you can, you can have different discussions here. But the memory of America as the greatest nation in the world really does matter to many people. So Trump, uh, President Trump vetoed the bill. And there was this really interesting eight days that, that happened. So he vetoes it on December 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve. Over the Christmas holiday, normally a very quiet news time with all the, the year in review lists being published, individuals weighed in. And the Heritage Foundation, not a far left organization by any means, said, why did he veto this? We need a defense act. Our military needs to be paid, funded. This is one of 370 plus sections. Don't veto it over this. And then Congress voted on January 1st to override President Trump's veto for the first time. The Senate was under Republican control at the time. The vote in the Senate was 81 for overriding, 13 against, and six abstentions. That's beyond a supermajority. And the, the 13, Bernie Sanders was in the 13. They tend to be people who had very strong ideological convictions. It wasn't as though the 13 most conservative members voted to keep this uh, from happening. Now, the date is important because history is all about contingency, what happens this time and that time. The Senate did this on January 1st, not knowing at all that five days later, the incident at the Capitol would occur. And so this was not a retort to that. It was not a result to that. It was already policy. But certainly some of the decisions by some of the people there, and there are all kinds of flags in the crowd, uh, but some of the people gave this work new meaning and new importance. I also want to point out that John C. Calhoun's portrait, the great secessionist, is actually right to the left, kind of behind the flags. So there's an interesting kind of parallel there. This created the Naming Commission. Uh, it is an incredible group of individuals. It has been the honor of my career to work with them. Combined, and I mean this in a good way, they have well over 200 years of experience in the military, in civil military relationship, in civil military relations, in politics. Our chair was the first woman to 
uh, received the rank of four-star admiral in the Navy. Our vice chair is former history department chair at West Point. We had the Marine Corps Commandant on there. We had the former chief of the Corps of Engineers on there. We had uh, John McCain's presidential advisor on there. We had the head of the draft, Selective Service on there, a sitting congressman from Georgia, a, a, a Republican leader and confidant of uh, the, the House, the Senate Armed Services Committee chair. These were bipartisan Americans who worked very hard in their work and in their process. And I was very honored to be their, their lead historian. So what did we do? I've tried to make this very, have the, the words be closest to the picture that does them, if that makes sense, but I'll try to explain that. So Congress mandated our work. They created the commission. We were a congressional commission and we had our charge. And we then our charge, by the way, was to create a plan to identify any Department of Defense asset that was a monument, symbol, name, uh, memorial, or paraphernalia. It went to that full word of paraphernalia, any cocktail napkin, street sign, that commemorated the Confederacy or any person who voluntarily served in the Confederacy, again, commemoration, big word, and make a plan for its modification or removal. So the language is important. We did not have control about its staying or going. We had control whether it commemorated. But besides that, if it did commemorate the Confederacy, it, it had to be changed. That was the law that Congress wrote and that bipartisan supermajorities passed. So we reported our findings to Congress. Our reports were to Congress. We also heard their thoughts. Oh, sorry, so that, that's how we worked. But we worked with the Department of Defense, especially the Army, which had the lion's share of the things to the commemorate the Confederacy. So we heard the thoughts of the Army. We went to all these bases. We heard thoughts from emails, from civilians, from soldiers, from enlisted, from officers, from retired officers, from people who lived in the communities. The commissioners traveled to each of these bases. Actually, the Army calls them posts. Uh, and the, the, the military supported our mission in incredible fashion. Uh, it was so humbling to have a colonel who has flown combat helicopters in Iraq calling in on me and, and checking to see if, you know, if I'm doing okay or if I'm going to get to this meeting with, you know, without any problems. Uh, so we heard their thoughts a lot, but there was no control whatsoever. As a thought experiment, this never happened, but Mark Milley could have called up the chief of staff, the, the main commission chief, or, uh, or myself, and said, I want you to do this. And we could have very politely said, I'm sorry, we don't work for you. We'll hear you, but we're not, you know, we are an independent commission. Last thing worth pointing out is that the, uh, as always, Congress funds the military and the military serves the people. Ever since George Washington surrendered his commission and sword in 1783 and did not endorse a coup by his junior officers, we have had a military that serves the United States people with civilian control. And that's not true in every country. So I wanted to highlight that. Over the course of 18 months, we went to all the bases throughout the South. We met with interest groups. Uh, this is a photo of myself and Major General Timothy Williams, the Adjutant General of the Virginia National Guard. It's taken here in Richmond at the Virginia War Memorial. The photographer's here, my colleague from the Amy Christian. Thank you. Uh, and uh, it is, it looks like we're arguing, we're not. We're having a very good conversation, but it, it captures in many ways what the Naming Commission did. We briefed Congress twice, the, the pro staff of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. The chair and vice chair briefed them every month or sometimes multiple times a month, kept them aware of what they were doing. And that was a choice. The, the, the report just said, you have 18 months or 20 months, go do this. They, they chose to have these lines of communication. And we ended up writing three reports to Congress on the 1,111 lines, can't make that up, of Excel spreadsheet that were reported to us of items that commemorated the Confederacy. Everything from a Confederate belt buckle in the Pentagon to a portrait hang in a seminar room, all the way up to the, uh, you know, to the name of Fort Lee or the name of Fort Bragg. And in this work, we really focus in on three things, memory, history, and commemoration. I do wanna apologize, the next slide, not this one, uh, has some photos of uh, amputations from the Civil War on it, so I want people to be aware of that. And I guess apologize is not the right word because it's part of our history, but just be 
aware of it. But the Civil War is one of the great things in our memory. There's a unfortunate line in our publishing world that if you want to get published, write about Nazis, dogs, and the Civil War. And um, that is to some extent true. Every year, Civil War reenactors come to Gettysburg, people come to watch them, and they want to relive this moment. They want to relive it provided they can sit in a lawn chair, that there's an ambulance on hand if anybody overheats, that there are portalettes so people aren't relieving themselves in open air latrines, which was the case when the armies were actually there. But Civil War memory has a deep hold on us, and that's important. We need memory to, to leave the Civil War for a second, just talk different example. Uh, the Holocaust, the six million people of Jewish descent and Roma descent who were killed in the Holocaust, murdered in the Holocaust. I can say that number is six million, and I'm not sure what impact it has on you. Six million is a whole lot or a whole little, depending on your, your gauge. I hope it's a whole lot. But if we think about the fact that if we were trying to make a, this is a, gr a grisly exercise, but a PowerPoint presentation, and every, one, every slide was a picture of somebody who died in, in that war, in the, murdered in the Holocaust. And it was one second per, one, two, three, four, five. We would be in this room for 69 and a half days nonstop before we could see all those people. And according to A Clockwork Orange, we would all go insane well before that. If we did the entire Second World War, it would be more than a year and a half. So we need things like the shoes and shaving kits at Auschwitz, memorials to make us remember these things. Memory gives it meaning. But our memories of the war are often just far too sanitized. Civil War reenactors are uh, allies, and I'm so grateful for their service, so I'm not trying to disparage them when I say this. But you meet hardcore reenactors every now and then who say, I. I do it the real way. I lock my cell phone in my glove box. I have a canteen that's metal and some hardtack, and that's all I do. And I say, I'm really glad you do that. But if you want to really reenact the Civil War, you have to lose all your vaccinations, about 30 years of your life, about six years of your schooling or more. You have to eat 800 calories a day for about three weeks, throw your shoes away, sleep in the air, and then you're getting close to what the Civil War is actually like. The Civil War was the most destructive, deadly conflict our nation has ever faced. In terms of per capita population lost, it was 10 times deadlier than World War II. More Americans died in the Civil War than any other of our foreign wars combined. So Civil War, all the other ones. There were 46 battles in the Civil War that had a higher per capita death rate than 9-11. 40% of all Civil War soldiers and 60% of all African-American Civil War soldiers were buried in unmarked graves. And the survivors often survived with missing limbs. That's the history of this war. But then there's commemoration. Commemoration in some ways is where memory and history meet, but it's also different from that. So, we thought about this a lot, and I ended up uh, writing the draft that made into the report largely, so I wanted to just read what we wrote about this ultimately. And this, this is based on lots of philosophy, lots of other historians' work. Although Americans owe much of their modern identity to the Civil War, they do not owe equal commemoration to both sides. Though often conflated, commemoration and history come from all sections of our society and serve different purposes for different people. So they're different. History describes the people and places of the past in all their greatness and grimness, achievements and failures, nobility and notoriety. Commemoration elevates an act, event, or individual by bestowing it with communal esteem and honor. The best histories present humans and their choices in the context of the complex and complicated days they lived through, articulating those decisions and actions to inform us on our past. The best commemorations highlight individuals, movements, and moments that epitomize the highest values of our present 
and motivate us as we shape the societies of the future. History recounts, explains, and examines. Commemoration celebrates, affirms, and extols. History is about who we were. Commemoration is about who we strive to be. To put another way, to quote my favorite fictional scholar, Indiana Jones, if you want truth, go to the philosophy department. History deals in fact. And the naming commissioners ultimately decided that as their charge from Congress told them to, in finding people to replace the nine names on the left, that the 10 names on the right were the best choices. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time, our, our process very briefly, I do wanna go over this, was we listened to all Americans uh, who wanted to speak with us. We listened to them with open mind. We heard from all kinds of people. I, I, we got handwritten notes. It was incredibly humbling to get a, a piece of notebook paper on which someone had written it out. And some of those touching ones were people who said, you know, it's probably a long shot, but my, my great-grandfather was in World War I, and he's really inspired my family. And maybe you could think about him for one of these street names. Uh, so we got direct letters. We had a website. One of our commissioners had the really important idea of we have to have a website so anybody can make a recommendation. And we got 35,000 website submissions, the majority of which were, were very thoughtful. We got a few, you know, uh, wags who recommended my favorite one was, was Fort Will and Kate because they would win any charm offensive, referring to the Duke and Duchess of uh, Wales. Uh, we got local communities feedback. We've been, we traveled all the forts. Uh, we heard from officers and army civilians and from enlisted soldiers. Hearing a soldier who's 22 and training to serve his country is an incredibly powerful moment, what he thinks or she thinks. And we heard from congressional people, government officials, uh, we listened to everybody. At the end of the day, those 35,000 recommendations were about 3,500 unique names. Uh, our public affairs officer did an incredible job of finding ways to catalog those and to make them usable. And we use a slight algorithm, though not like Facebook, to decide which names have been recommended by the most people. So a, a good way of thinking if the name was gonna inspire a lot of Americans is if a congressman, officer, enlisted, soldier, letter writer, and websiter had all said, let's think about this person. That was a good way to, to think about them moving forward. From there, we found there were 450 candidates who were truly meritorious, who had stories that were really just so incredible. And then a team of historians and myself uh, made a short list of 87 finalists. We, we said, these are the people that we, we think are, are, are the most inspiring. The commissioners looked at that shortlist. They added a few names that we had left off. They took a few names we had put on off. They had control over the whole time. We re-engaged all those groups we spoke to. We went back through Zoom to all the forts and the communities. The commissioners met for a couple of days and did nothing but deliberate. Catered by Panera. And at the end, we found these nine names. I'm gonna speak a little bit about the uh, names that were chosen for three Virginia forts to give an example of some of the Americans that are being renamed. And the other thing that I think is matters is that as a historian, I firmly believe, I would never say anything like there is nothing whatsoever commendable about, uh, about somebody. I'm a millennial, uh, all the problems used to be our fault, now it's Gen Z's fault, so that's good. But the last thing I wanna do is go back in a time machine and find some poor kid who signed up at 17 and, uh, you know, he, he because his, everyone in his town was doing it, his parents told him to. He somehow survived four years of war. He's in Petersburg. He's starving. He has no shoes. The last thing I want to do is go back and kick dirt on him. And, and we owe him his humanity and his suffering and the, the empathy. I mean, if we don't do that, we're doing what some Americans did to enslave people, which is to make them less than human. So I have no desire to say anybody's truly evil, but it became a question of better or worse. Is it better to have a, a fort named after A.P. Hell, who very effectively commanded units that uh, killed many United States Army soldiers? There's aftermath of the battles, and there's the carnage of U.S. Army soldiers drowning in Antietam Creek and uh, you know, being horribly destroyed by canister and shell, and A.P. Hell's forces did that. 
or Dr. Mary Walker, the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor to date. Dr. Walker was born in 1832 she, in Oswego, New York. She was an abolitionist and she was an early advocate for uh, women's rights, but not even women's rights, for just equality. She disagreed with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others who said we need more legislation to, uh, to, to make us equal. She said, no, we don't. It's in the first line of the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. She took an expansive view of men. She said, we are human beings. We, African-Americans, Native Americans, anyone is equal. We deserve equal rights and respect. It's up to the country to live up to their promises to us. She was the second woman to ever receive a medical degree from Syracuse University. The first person to ever do so was Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to become a doctor in the United States. She entered the medical profession when one out of 183 doctors were women. So I don't know how many that, a lot of people in this room, which is great, but you know, there's 183 of us. So not even anybody in this room would be, be her. And when the Civil War broke out, she went to DC and she demanded to be hired as a surgeon. They offered her a job as a nurse. She said no. They offered her a job as a hospital director. She said no. She said, I am trained as a surgeon and I will work as a surgeon. She volunteered for those other work, but I will only accept payment for my job as a surgeon. She was appointed surgeon of an Ohio regiment. Uh, she was there in the Chattanooga campaign. She crossed uh, enemy lines to treat wounded Confederates also. She had her oath to treat all mankind. She was arrested as a spy, brought here to Richmond, where she was imprisoned for four months in Castle Thunder. She was often mocked in the press, but she persisted. And at the end of the war, they wanted to brevet her. Breveting is a way of showing honor for somebody. You were a colonel in the war, but we're gonna brevet you up to a general. You still get a colonel's pay, so it's not as great as being a general, but you, you get all the respect of being a general. And, and, um, but they couldn't because she was a civilian, no women could enlist. So General Sherman, General Thomas, Thomas of Virginia, who stayed loyal to the United States, recommended her for the Medal of Honor. President Johnson signed it. She also wore, some people say men's clothes, but I much prefer her own take on it, especially from a society today where women can wear jeans and it's not a big deal. Um, so I don't wear my own clothes. I wear, I, I don't wear men's clothes. I wear my own clothes. And she wore a combination. She, she was who she wanted to be at different points in her life, and she literally wrapped herself in her American service in the Civil War. When she was arrested for wearing non-gender binary clothes, she often would say, I earn the right to do as I want in free and happy America by serving in its tented battlefields. And this is, the, yeah, that, that was in like 1880, 1890, she was, she was saying this. And she lived to be, she lived till 1919. Fort Pickett, uh, George Pickett is known mostly for being the, the commander of Pickett's Charge, though it could also be called Longstreet's Charge or Lee's Charge or Hancock's Defense. Uh, it's a kind of a quirk, partly because his wife was such an active promoter of him that we know as Pickett's Charge. And his wife, by the way, if you've read George Pickett's letters that are so wonderfully beautiful and you, you wish you could write that way, it's because she wished he could write that way. Uh, most of his letters are entirely fabrication. They're not, they're not actually anything he wrote. Uh, besides the, the Pickett's charge, he also was essentially a war criminal. He, he ordered the execution of 22 prisoners uh, of war. And he wrote a letter saying, if you execute one Confederate soldier, I will order the execution of 10 United States Army soldiers, not Federals, not Yanks, United States Army soldiers. Is it better for him or for Van Barfoot? Van Barfoot was born in Mississippi in a small town. He was of Choctaw heritage. He volunteered for the army before World War II. He could see what was happening. He wanted to be in, in the army. He shipped over with the Virginia division, was a veteran of four D-Day landings. And in 1944, received the Medal of Honor for a day that is well, let's try and tell it. Uh, they had to clear a minefield. He had done reconnaissance already, so he volunteered to go out alone and reconnoitre the position. He saw a way to go around it, in which case he encountered a German emplacement. He killed eight Germans and took others prisoners. 
he uh, again took a, a another position. That was before lunch. After lunch, the Germans counterattacked. He took a bazooka and destroyed one tank and neutralized the other two. Went forward again with a few men, took more prisoners of war. Whenever he could, he didn't want to fire his weapon. He found a German artillery piece and destroyed that with a, uh, a Claiborne mine charge, essentially. And then he, uh, on the way back, found two US soldiers who'd become disoriented and essentially shell-shocked shell and got them back to his own lines. He was also a Virginian. He lived in Virginia. He was, with the, he was the Army Advisor at the Virginia National Guard for the next 20 years. There's an incredible interview with him he did with the Library of Congress. And clearly not a Virginian, though my dad was born uh, in Virginia. Uh, the, uh, he, he, you can hear his voice, and he has got a wonderful Virginia accent. And the, the coda that it happens, that we didn't choose him for this, but he was living in Henrico County in a, in a condo association when he was 90, and he insisted on flying the American flag. And when they said, the homeowner association said he couldn't, uh, he made a big deal out of it, as he should, and President Obama got involved on his side, and it was a really important kind of moment. And uh, sorry, a few pictures, but uh, you know, he was a soldier. Uh, the, the term soldier, soldier is thrown around far too much and means anything you want it to. But uh, even as a colonel, he, he still went out in the field, took his duties very seriously. You can see by some of the clothes he's wearing that this is not a nice time to be in the field. He doesn't have to be there, but he's still inspecting units. He's still working. And he loved chow. There's something about chow. He, there's so many pictures of him eating chow with other soldiers, which I think speaks a lot to his career. And that's uh, him both as a Medal of Honor at the 29th Infantry Division Reactivation Ceremony in 1985, then him as a retiree uh, raising the flag. And then lastly, closest to here, Fort Lee, Virginia, is going to be named after two people, Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams and Lieutenant General Arthur Gregg. And these two individuals really speak to the mission of Fort Lee. Fort Lee is a, where the Quartermaster's Corps is, it's the home of Army sustainment. I'm going to miss a few things that also happened there, but uh, I have some friends from Fort Lee here. But one kind of, I would say secret, but we don't focus on well enough because it doesn't sell movie tickets, is our, our nation is has one of the greatest militaries in the world, if not the greatest, because it's the best supplied military in the world. We have an expeditionary force, which is able to project force anywhere in the world. And they do so supplied with levels of support and materiel, and even comforts like Wi-Fi that are just unknown to other armies in the field. And if you think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine when they literally ran out of gas, it's people at Fort Lee who train and execute all those supply and logistics. One of the ironies is that Robbie Lee's army was never particularly well supplied, uh, partly due to the realities of war, but also partly because he focused so much on, on battle and, and, and getting into the fight that you had no place, no better place in the whole war of, of dying or being wounded than in the Army of Northern Virginia. That's the highest death and casualty rates. So Charity Adams was already a college graduate and working towards her master's at the age of 23, I believe, when World War II started. She signed up to join the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, later on the WACs. It was W-A-A-C then. Uh, and she quickly became a leader and projected to the ranks where she was the achieved the highest rank that anybody besides the actual director of the Women's Army Corps could achieve. And she commanded the 6888-6888 Postal Battalion. And these were African-American women and a few Puerto Rican women who went overseas to deliver the mail. And in World War II, the mail really, really mattered. Uh, it was what connected people to home. There were no obviously no email, no phone calls, no a telegraph was a bad thing. You didn't want to receive a telegraph in World War II. Um, so there was the only way people could communicate. And they sorted the work of three men's battalions in a day. They sorted six million messages a month. They got those messages going to the right place of uh, six million men engaged in Europe who were moving around. And she had such an understanding of the importance of her work. She made sure her troops were sharp, got inspected, that they marched. Hers was a mission to show that we are, in fact, equal, even at a time where Jim Crow society declared them unequal. 
Arthur Gregg uh, was, for the course of his career, often the highest ranking African-American in the military. He was at Fort Lee. He was joined a segregated military and, in fact, was trained as a medical technician, but he couldn't get hired anywhere because the white hospitals wouldn't hire him. He shipped overseas as a medical technician, but no white hospital in Germany in the wake of World War II would hire him because it was a segregated army. So they put him uh, in, a, in a supply unit, which was kind of seen as being a slight, you know, that's where African-Americans belonged. And he essentially said, if this is my place, I'm going to do the absolute best job I can and quickly rose to the ranks, uh, chose to attend OCS at Fort Lee. He was, I can't prove he was the first, but he was amongst the first African-Americans to, to walk through the door of the Fort Lee Officers Club and desegregate it with his presence. And he became a leader and mentor to a generation of African-American leaders. So uh, Lieutenant General Dennis Villa, or now General Dennis Villa, in that picture with him, uh, that's him giving the Arthur Gregg Sustainment Award to another person. He was the first recipient. Uh, and that's him in the officers club at Fort Lee. And he is still with us. And in a little over a couple of months, I believe, or can we release, is the date in the public? Uh, at the end of April, he will be there uh, as Fort Lee is renamed Fort Greg Adams. So I, I'm gonna open up to questions, but the only thing I wanna close on is as we did this work, we took it very seriously. And I really mean what I say, I don't, I don't know what it would've been like to be in front of Petersburg and, 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 or at Gettysburg. But in terms of our commemoration, what we're really doing is not revolutionizing history, rewriting it, we're getting back to what a lot of people from Andrew Johnson to Frederick Douglass knew. At the end of his life in 1894, Frederick Douglass said, he didn't know he was gonna die. He was a year before he died, but he had a very sudden death. He, he thought he was gonna keep working and living for a number of years. Uh, whatever else I may forget, forgetting memory. I shall never forget the difference between those who fought for liberty and those who fought for slavery between those who fought to save the Republic and those who fought to destroy it. So as a Civil War historian, I am devoting my life and career to telling both sides of that story. But as a citizen of the present with children growing up in the future, I'm very glad that our monuments are changing to what they are. Thank you. I think there are microphones uh, ready to go. Anybody has a question? So please do wait for the microphone for the recording. One here, yep. Yeah. Uh, the renaming of Fort Lee, why two people? It's a great question. We really listened, and this is the, I mean, I endorse it, but the, the, I wanna give the commissioners all the credit they deserve uh, for their wonderful leadership. We, we listened to the communities deeply. We really wanted to hear from people living on post, off post, nearby, uh, local organizations like LULAC and NAACP. And so when we talked to Fort Lee, we, part of it was there were these two great candidates who were, I mean, there are many great candidates at Fort Lee, uh, but these two ones who were incredible sustainers, low decisions in the broad sense of the term. And in one of our engagements, uh, one of the commissioners said, would you be okay with naming it after both of them? And uh, this happened, there are joint bases in, in the military, so it's not an entirely new thing, but they, uh, they said, yes, we would like that. And so in most of these cases, I think in all the cases, these names were, again, the commissioners liked them, I like them as a historian, but they were approved by virtually all of those six arrows I showed. And, uh, and really, there, there, were not, there were very few surprises. The, the, the communities knew we were thinking about these names, and, and they weighed in on them. I also think, frankly, it's probably going to get outside my, an army of one, that was the slogan for a while. Um, it always seemed kind of strange because my grandfather was a crew military officer and Harold Moore uh, in his, his book, Hal Moore, the new name for Fort Benning and with his wife, Julia, he writes, you know, in combat, the world reduces to you, to the man on the left of you and the man on your right of you. So it's always, the, the army's never been about an army of one. It's always been about an army of a unit, of, of partnership, of, of teamwork. And so it also kind of alludes to that, I think, which is nice. Thank you. Question up, yeah, two, yeah. 
thank you for taking my question. I'm Bo Trawick. I served as a regular Army commissioned officer in Vietnam, company commander. I'm also a Virginian. And I believe that Voltaire was correct when he said history is the propaganda of the victorious. As such, if you win your bid for independence, as we did at Yorktown, you're deemed as a patriot. But if you lose your bid for independence, as we did at Appomattox, you're branded as a traitor. So my question to you is, sir, if we were traitors for fighting to defend our country from invasion, conquest, and coerced political allegiance, just as we had done in 1776, when the 13 slaveholding colonies seceded from the British Empire, why was the United States government so uh, afraid of trying any of us for treason, namely Jefferson Davis, who had been putting leg irons for two years. Why was the federal government so afraid of trading, uh, uh, of trying anyone for treason after the war? Thank you. It's a great question, and you may know Jefferson Davis really wanted to be tried for treason. Uh, he wanted essentially what a lot of historians have called a show trial that would put his cause on trial. And he was willing to risk the gallows uh, as a result. I think there are two reasons. Uh, one is just the, the terms of Appomattox that Grant gives is he says that soldiers can go home if they put their arms down, they will be not, uh, they will not be interfered with. And that the government really wanted to honor those terms. And they said, it's kind of strange to we don't want to get the legality of, well, you know, you were at Appomattox, but you weren't, so you're okay, but we're trying for treason. Theodore Parker, a, a great abolitionist uh, from the, the North, who by no means was sympathetic to her cause, still said, we can't hang men in regiments. You know, we, we don't want to do that. Um, what's very clear is that if you ask any United States veteran from the 1880s, 1890s onward, uh, 1870s, they, they knew that the enemy had, had committed treason. And it was part of Lincoln's great vision to try to have malice towards none um, that he did not enforce those rules. However, to get to the malice towards none of Lincoln's second inaugural, you have to skip over 700 words. Don't skip over the 700 words. He's being very clear. This war was fought by one side to destroy the Union, one side to save it. This is a national penance for slavery. The malice towards none is important, but it's, it's far from his main or only message. Um, so that's, that's my brief answer. Uh, in 1869, the Supreme Court uh, does, in fact, say that secession is unconstitutional. Of course, there's no going back. The Constitution made, made no provision for secession. There's no, it made a provision for how to amend it, it made a provision for you know, how people would be paid and elected. It made no provision for how to leave the union. Uh, even if there was a kind of a natural right that Jefferson cited to form a new government, Great Britain had a national natural right to say that we don't want you to go. And that battle proved good for the United States and the battle to secede uh, did not prove well for the Confederacy. So those are my many reasons, but I'd be happy to speak more afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I think one correction, uh, <laughs> Upscale housing community, so it's not condos, but it's the uh, oh. Condo Owners Association. Uh, oh. My question is: Did you make a conscientious effort to recognize as many Medal of Honor winners as possible with street names or uh, pothole covers or? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, actually, I gave a, a, a Yes is the short answer. Of that 87 shortlist, uh, 50 of them had received the Medal of Honor. And of the, the individuals who were became the fort names, uh, three, I, I know Novacell and, uh, let's get back to this. Uh, yeah, the, the four of them had received the Medal of Honor um, and Henry Johnson posthumously. So we, we we did think that was a very important part. And the Medal of Honor is incredibly important it, it, because it's for exceptional valor above and beyond the call. It, uh, it kind of equalizes things across conflicts, if that makes sense. 
with a glaring exception that for World War I, World War II, no African-Americans or Asian-Americans received the Medal of Honor. And Congress in the 1990s and uh, 2000s had to go back and say, let's really look at some of these DSCs and Silver Stars and see if there was some, some bias here. Uh, so we did, and, and so four of these 10 have the, received Medal of Honor. And we also, with those 87, we published them all in our report. There are, uh, there are little kind of biographies, even those that were not selected. And, and we said, we want you local commanders to choose the new name for Jeb Stewart Place or Stonewall Jackson Terrace. You know best. However, comma, if you want some inspiration, here are some names that are really important. In fact, sorry, but Powhatan Beatty, who I can't not mention, uh, he's on the wall outside. He's born in Richmond, enslaved in 1837. He makes his way to freedom in Ohio. He signs up for the USCT in 63. He comes back here and he finds himself at the Battle of Newmarket Heights. Uh, he is going to be one of the African-American regiments charted to take that position against VMI cadets. It's a horrible battle between these, these two minority groups, in a sense, um, the very young cadets and the African-Americans. Uh, his regiment is, is very badly hurt. By the end of it, there are 17 men who are not wounded. He is the one who takes charge and leads the final assault that dislodges the VMI position for at least a little bit. And he receives a Medal of Honor. That's a Virginia story. That's a story of a Virginian who had a Civil War heroism that I think we can all appreciate. And he's going to be the new name for the former Fort Lee Theater, I, I believe. I've heard. Lots of questions. Yeah. Uh, this is a question about the idea of the lost cause. Mm -hmm. Do you think the lost cause uh, story um, can be or should be either memorialized, commemorated, or um, remembered? Great question. And I'm going to very much aside, so I say, uh, Mr. Trawick, thank you very much for your service in the war, by the way. I did not mean to uh, pass that by, so thank you. Um, should the lost cause story be, you had three words, memorialized, commemorated, or? I think that it could be remembered. Um, certainly the aspect that focuses on the human suffering that Confederate forces endured. Uh, the, 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 that, that is something we should remember as humans of, of the, the misery and tragedy this war brought on to people. Uh, it's important to remember how devastated the South was. I, I come on the opinion that ever since the Hartford Convention or nullification in 1832 or the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, there's never been a time where someone's threatened violence or secession from the United States government. And there hasn't been a, if you try this, we will fight you instinct. And so I think that that actually has a lot to do with, uh, with why this happens. But I think that there's a sense there. And I think it's really important to remember how we remembered the war. So I think the lost cause should be remembered um, in that sense. I don't think it should be taught or propagated, but you, you can't understand a lot of the policies that happened in the 1930s and 1910s without understanding the grip the lost cause had. I think the one clarification I'd make is that the lost cause is an invention of the 1910s, really, of the UDC next door. Uh, it is any soldiers, especially in the United States Army, veterans, you ask, they're not willing to buy into this whole kind of mutual value, valor states' rights. They remember what they fought for. And reconciliation happens as much because if you fought for the Union, for the United States, and that's where the Union makes sense, fighting for the Union is in the Union of the States. The best way to prove you were right is to keep the Union intact and let other people back into the Union. So those are my, my, my brief thoughts. It's a great question. Um, I think it should be taught in museums. They have a great exhibit here in the VHMSC of Battle Abbey that they they have the pictures. You can look at them, but there's also interpretation now. Thank you. Those are all admirable people on the screen. But uh, I wonder where did George C. Marshall finish? Uh, there, oh, in that sorry, <laughs> looking for the question. 
Uh, George Marshall was amongst our, our list of 87 finalists, and he's a, a Virginian um, with Virginia Connections, and many of them. Ultimately, I think what the part of what the commissioners wanted to say is that we had a chance to, to inspire uh, next generations of Americans with stories that have not fully been celebrated yet. And we have many general officers celebrated on our forts uh, as they currently stand. Um, and so they, they thought ultimately that for, you know, for, for these names, a, a story that was a bit more representative of the vast majority of soldiers who will not rise to the rank of general of the army was the, the most appropriate, but, but certainly as a historian, his contributions to the second world war, to the post-war development of, of Europe, as all the federal positions he held afterwards, uh, can't be understated. And, and I think he's a monumental figure. And he was Eisenhower's boss. <laughs> it's true. My name is Ann McLean, and I wrote a doctoral dissertation on the lost cause and the Civil War in Richmond and Petersburg and the whole area. And I want to thank you for coming and inviting questions. And I have a two-part question. The first is, General Eisenhower had words about um, his admiration for General Robert E. Lee. So do we take Ty Sedulli's um, assessment of Lee from his book, Robert E. Lee and Me, and think that that's better than our General Eisenhower, who helped us so much in World War II? But secondly, I have a, an Army friend who's read your entire report, and I've read most of it. And you use a criteria against the Southerners that they enslaved and, and tortured U.S. soldiers. And if by that same reasoning you say, you know, it, and that's one of the reasons you want these Confederate names off because they, these, the South did that, doesn't that apply to Native Americans who also enslaved people and they tortured people and I don't see how our army can have Blackhawks um, you know and different you know really we need to celebrate all of America I don't at all approve of this erasing of history but that's an inconsistency that in your own words of the report of the Congressional Naming Commission it just seems really lopsided to me yeah, I do want to point out I, I've I had a hand in writing a lot of the report and unless there is an edit made that I didn't wasn't aware of. I don't think in any way do we say that Confederates enslaved and tortured U.S. soldiers, nor do we say that they enslaved and tortured African Americans, though certainly their cause was for enslavement. That's all over their secession doctrine and, and, and all, I mean, that's been settled. Yes, they, they did those two things. Absolutely. And, and my, my, my short but accurate answer is uh, we were given a charge by Congress to do this. So that's a question for your elected representatives. Um, with that being said, if 80 senators, 81, say that we should review other problematic names in our national commemoration, I would take that as a pretty good sign that it's time to review other problematic names. Um, so that, that that's the... The, the most clear thing you know, to to Eisenhower, our our chair was very clear that you know no one is a Boy Scout after they're fourteen, um, literally and figuratively. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower wrote an executive order that barred LGBTQ people from the federal government. Uh, he did. He was at the Bonus Army. Um, there are lots of things in Dwight Eisenhower's past and many people's pasts that uh, are are not ideal, as there are in almost all Americans. We entertained in some cases not using names at all, but what you do at that point lose is the chance to tell a really inspiring story. And to that end, I think the principal legacy of Dwight Eisenhower is of the entire consummate military professional who, who studied war and learned it for 30 years and who planned the greatest amphibious assault in world history that saved the course of Western European politics along the liberal tradition for, well, through today. So uh, th that's our thought there. Did he think Lee was an admirable man? He did. He had a farm at Gettysburg. Uh, he grew up with what he knew, and a lot of what he knew was because people did not listen to or value the lives of African-American 
African Americans or African American historians. Um, so that's my, my those are my thoughts. Do you, as a historian, do you see any similarities uh, between the divisions and passions that led up to the Civil War and the divisions and passions that we're in the midst of today? That's that, that's the uh, the many millions dollar question. Uh, it used to be a very firm no. Uh, I, I used to have no problem saying absolutely not because three years before the Civil War happened, uh, you know, Preston Brooks assaulted Charles Sumner with a cane on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Um, and a few years before the war happened, two years, John Brown led an armed band of raiders with the intention to start an insurrection that would undoubtedly led to the deaths of many, you know, Virginians. Um, there is more political violence these days than there, there has been for a while in our country, and that is very frightening to me. Uh, however, if you look at the, and Ed Ayers' work is so good on this, at the cultures that existed in these places, uh, there was such a, 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 lar a, a small but focused majority in these states. And I should mention, the Confederacy, they have 9 million people, that's how you remember them. Three and a half million of the people are enslaved, and the vast majority do not want the Confederacy to win the war. A million of them escape to United States lines as they can. The 5.5 million Confederates that had free will, or could exercise their free will, because everybody had free will, but they could exercise it, that's fewer Americans than existed in New York and Pennsylvania alone. Three U.S. cities had more people than, uh, than six Confederate states. In fact, the original Confederacy, the seven lower South states, had fewer people in them combined than just Pennsylvania. So it's a minority movement. But you still have this group of people who is willing to risk all for it. And I think when Marjorie Taylor Greene a few weeks ago said we need a national divorce, everyone virtually, you know, or many people from both sides of the aisle said that's not what we need. And so I think we're, we're pretty far away from that kind of rhetoric of a true division. Thank you. <laughs>